Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. For now, the podcast is mostly ad-free, and I sure would like to keep it that way. You can help me out with that by becoming a supporting listener. If you find value in the podcast, there's a link in the show notes page that lets you contribute to my work, and that'll help keep the podcast going and light on advertising. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I've also set up a Cash App profile for the show, so one-time contributions can be sent there, and all of this information is also listed in that show notes page. If you contribute at least $4.99 per month, you're eligible for membership in the Ward Republic, which gets you one phone call with myself and the other Ward Republic members each month. And support monetary freedom today and head over to our new sponsor at www.defythegrid.com to purchase your gold backs. I have an affiliate link in the show notes page as well. And if you use it, I will get a 1% commission. So click on my link in the show notes page and help fuel monetary decentralization today. And don't forget to download the MeWe app and search for me so we can be friends and then I can add you into the show's private MeWe group so we can have sane and rational discourse around historic and current political topics. And without further ado, let's go ahead and get started with today's topic. All right, today's episode is going to be relatively short, sweet, and to the point. What we're going to do is continue our study of the original Senate, this time from the Anti-Federalist perspective. And for this episode, we're going to focus on an excerpt from the essay Sentinel Number 1. The Sentinel essays were written by a man named Samuel Bryan, and he was a leading Anti-Federalist in the state of Pennsylvania. And he was the son of George Bryan. Now, George was actually a judge on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, and he was the arch-Anti-Federalist in the state of Pennsylvania. So see, once upon a time, we had people who understood the local power and interest that they were entrusted with by their local fellow citizens. So let's go ahead and get started again. This is going to be an excerpt from Sentinel Number 1. This essay was published in the Philadelphia Freeman's Journal on October 5th, 1787. So this is right before James Wilson, literally the day before James Wilson gives his State House Yard Address, which we'll look at that speech as part of this as well. Well, this series, rather, not this particular episode. So, But without further ado, let's go ahead and actually start reading this excerpt. It would not be difficult to prove that anything short of despotism could not bind so great a country under one government, and that whatever plan you might, at the first setting out, establish, it would issue in a despotism. All right, and Sentinel is making an extremely strong case right off the bat. He's saying any government that could be large enough to control the entire continent is going to, by necessity, be a despotism because a government to be that strong has to be that despotic. Very strong point, in my opinion, but back to the essay. If one general government could be instituted and maintained on principles of freedom, it would not be so competent to attend to the various local concerns and wants of every particular district, as well as the peculiar governments who are near the scene and possessed of superior means of information. Besides, if the business of the whole union is to be managed by one government, there would not be time. Do we not already see that the inhabitants in a number of larger states who are remote from the seat of government are loudly complaining of the inconveniences and disadvantages they are subjected to on this account, and that to enjoy the comforts of local government, they are separating into smaller divisions? And from what I can tell here, he's actually talking about state secession movements that had already happened, or or separate states being formed out of existing states, I, I guess would be more accurate. So still state secession, but I think he's talking about probably when Vermont split off of New York. Now, that had happened about 10 years prior to this. But he could also be referencing when Kentucky was splitting off of Virginia. Now, officially, that did not happen until 1792. 
So this speech was given about five years before that, or this essay rather was written about five years before that. However, there were already some rumblings about Kentucky wanting to split away from Virginia and be its own state, even at this point. It actually, it took quite some time for that to officially happen. So that's probably what he's referencing there. And I, I thought that was interesting that he's talking about, look, we already have these smaller entities, like these smaller states, obviously smaller than the union as a whole. And even their constituents are getting upset about the inconveniency and lack of access to their government. So they're wanting to split off. So I, I thought that was very interesting. Because we're starting to see that again in modern times. You have upstate New York that wants to leave New York City. Uh, you have portions of the Atlanta area that want to break away from the city limits and so on and so forth. Out in Oregon, there's a secession movement out there to join part of Oregon with part of Idaho. So very interesting. I mean, I mean, we have, again, a lot of historical precedents here. So I don't know that our leaders now are enlightened enough to allow that to happen peacefully, but it is interesting how history kind of echoes over and over again. But back to the essay. Having taken a review of the powers, I shall now examine the construction of the proposed general government. Article 1, Section 1. All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and House of Representatives. By another section, the President, the principal executive officer, has a conditional control over their proceedings. Section 2. The House of Representatives shall be composed of members chosen every second year by the people of the several states. The number of representatives shall not exceed one for every 30,000 inhabitants. The Senate, the other constituent branch of the legislature, is formed by the legislature of each state appointing two senators for the term of six years. The executive power by Article 2, Section 1 is to be vested in a President of the United States of America, elected for four years, Section 2 gives him power by and with the consent of the Senate to make treaties, provided two-thirds of the senators present concur, and he shall nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers, and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for, and which shall be established by law, etc., and by another section, he has the absolute power of granting reprieves and pardons for treason and all other high crimes and misdemeanors, except in case of impeachment. And just a quick pause here. So when he's talking about the power to make treaties, a lot of anti-federalists actually did not like the, the way that that was outlined and given to the Senate. So the thought process was that the Senate was too aristocratic to handle treaties unilaterally, obviously with the president, but the anti-federalist thought process was you needed to have the Federal House of Representatives involved because those were the only directly elected officials at this time. The president was not directly elected. The Senate was not directly elected. So they didn't per se have a problem with the Senate maybe writing up the treaties, but when it came to actually ratifying the treaties and so on and so forth, they definitely thought that that should also go before the House of Representatives to give the people a direct voice or, or at least a, a more direct voice, not exactly direct, but a more direct voice. So just, just, to elaborate on that, why, why he mentions that, he doesn't really talk about it too much in, in this particular essay, but as we get into more anti-federalist critiques, that's going to be something that you see come up again. But anyway, back to the essay. The foregoing are the outlines of the plan. Thus we see the House of Representatives are on the part of the people to balance the Senate, who I suppose will be composed of the better sort, the well-born, etc. The number of the representatives, being only one for every 30,000 inhabitants, appears to be too few either to communicate the requisite information of the wants, local circumstances, and sentiments of so extensive an empire, 
or to prevent corruption and undue influence in the exercise of such great powers, the term for which they are to be chosen, too long to preserve a due dependence and accountability to their constituents, and the mode and places of their election not sufficiently ascertained, for as Congress have the control over both, they may govern the choice by ordering the representatives of a whole state to be elected in one place, and that too may be the most inconvenient. The Senate, the great efficient body in this plan of government, is constituted on the most unequal principles. The smallest state in the Union has equal weight with the great states of Virginia, Massachusetts, or Pennsylvania. The Senate, besides its legislative functions, has a very considerable share in the executive. None of the principal appointments to office can be made without its advice and consent. The term and mode of its appointment will lead to permanency. The members are chosen for six years. The mode is under the control of Congress, and as there is no exclusion by rotation, they may be continued for life, which from their extensive means of influence would follow, of course. The president, who would be a mere pageant of state unless he coincides with the views of the Senate, would either become the head of the aristocratic junto and that body, or its minion. Besides, their influence being the most predominant, could the best secure his re-election to office. And from his power of granting pardons, he might screen from punishment the most treasonable attempts on liberties of the people when instigated by the Senate. From this investigation into the organization of this government, it appears that it is devoid of all responsibility or accountability to the great body of the people, and that so far from being a regular balanced government, it would be in practice a permanent aristocracy. Okay, and so this is where I do somewhat diverge from some of the anti-federalists. So some of them were extremely populistic. They thought everything should basically boil down to a majoritarian vote. And to that extent, I, I can't get on board with that because if you're going to have a federal system, you have to have a way to recognize the states as states, which is what the, sen the original Senate was. Again, James Madison said that in Federalist 62. But here, it, it is interesting because... While Sentinel is, is making the argument that everything's going to be based on equal weight between the small states and the large states, George Mason made a similar argument, but I feel that he articulated it better. So George Mason, when he was talking about this, his fear was that if you give the smaller, especially the New England states, equal representation with the large states at this time, like New York and Virginia, you could basically form a senatorial faction and you could have minority rule over everything. So you would have popular rule in the House, but the Senate, because they could amend revenue bills and do also, and originate other types of legislation, he thought you would basically end up getting a faction where the Southern states would be voted down eight votes to five in the Senate consistently. It, sometimes maybe New York and Delaware being, being some tiebreakers there, but I think this is interesting because, again, the anti-federalist here Sentinel, he, in my opinion, he's misrepresenting what the Senate was supposed to be. If, if he truly wants a government that still recognizes states, then yes, it is imperative that the Senate be based on equal representation. That way, again, you're recognizing the states as states. But his fear, and what he's saying here, is that it's going to become an aristocratic body for the aristocratic few of the state, not necessarily representing the state as states. In his opinion, giving him the benefit of the doubt, it's more so that the Senate's going to become a, an unaccountable body representing the moneyed interest and not the state as a state, not basically not the interest of the entire state, just the interest of the few of the state. 
So interesting point here, but I, I do vehemently disagree with him that the Senate should have been apportioned based on population the same way that the House was. I, I cannot get on board with that. And I think it's also interesting, and, and I think he's wrong on this, but again, obviously we're speaking with the benefit of hindsight, but I thought it was interesting. He, he kind of envisioned the Senate taking on such an independent role that they would make the president a, a mere puppet. Now, do we have puppet presidents now? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But is it the Senate pulling the strings? I don't think so. I think it's the ABC agencies. So prior to the 17th Amendment, the Senate definitely was a lot more powerful. But post-17th Amendment, so at least in, in our lifetimes, what you have is really a Congress, uh, representatives and, and the Senate both, all they do is punt their responsibility to the president. They're, they're making the president an extremely authoritative and autocratic office. So Brian McClenahan has said this a lot, and I fully agree with him. Because of what the 17th Amendment did, since then, you're really starting to see the rise of the elected monarch in American politics. That, that's what we have now, an elected king. And Republicans, when Donald Trump was in office, they wanted him to act unilaterally. They wanted him to just get stuff done. When Democrats are in office, I mean, it's the exact same thing. Obama, I think, had issued the most executive orders ever prior to Trump. I'm not sure if Trump broke that. But it's insane because that's not how this was supposed to be. The Senate was supposed to be the most powerful body, and that was by design. You hear a lot about co-equal branches now. No, it, it was not originally designed like that. The Senate was supposed to be the most powerful, but it was also the smallest. There, therefore, I mean, you, you still have some checks on the Senate, but the Senate was supposed to be kind of the backstop of the whole system. And because the states appointed the senators, the states still had a very strong voice in the system. But let's go ahead and get back to the essay. The framers of it, actuated by the true spirit of such a government, whichever abominates and suppresses all free inquiry and discussion, have made no provision for the liberty of the press, that grand palladium of freedom and scourge of tyrants, but observed a total silence on that head. It is the opinion of some great writers that if the liberty of the press by an institution of religion or otherwise could be rendered sacred, even in Turkey, that despotism would fly before it. And it is worthy to remark that there is no declaration of personal rights premised in most free constitutions and that trial by jury in civil cases is taken away for what other construction can be put on the following, viz. Article 3, Section 2, in all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers, and consuls, in those in which a state shall be party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction. In all the other cases above mentioned, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction, both as to law and fact. It would be a novelty in jurisprudence as well as evidently improper to allow an appeal from the verdict of a jury on the matter of fact. Therefore, it implies and allows of a dismissal of the jury in civil cases, and especially when it is considered that jury trial in criminal cases is expressly stipulated for, but not in civil cases. But our situation is represented to be so critically dreadful that however reprehensible and exceptionable the proposed plan of government may be, there is no alternative between the adoption of it and absolute ruin. My fellow citizens, things are not at that crisis. It is the argument of tyrants. The present distracted state of Europe secures us from injury on that quarter. And as to domestic dissensions, we have not so much to fear from them as to precipitate us into this form of government. Without it is a safe and proper one. For remember, of all possible evils, that of despotism is the worst and the most to be dreaded. And here, in, in my opinion, Sentinel is hitting the nail on the head. So he's saying 
But our situation is represented to be so critically dreadful that however reprehensible and exceptionable the proposed plan of government may be, there is no alternative. So he's saying, look, we're being steered into this. You have people who are interested in power, and they're saying that this is the only alternative aside from ruin. And I agree with him there. So if you if you go back and look at the Articles of Confederation, again, the really big complaints is that the general government had no way to enforce uh, the collection of, of general taxes. But the Articles of Confederation, the colonies were able to beat the most powerful military in the world under the Articles. It, it, well, in the states at that point. So after 1776, the states. But they were able to take on the most powerful military in the world under under their articles, and they won. And they were just a ragtag bunch of vagabonds, basically, compared to the British Army at the time. So it's interesting to me because Sentinel does see, look, we're being manipulated into this, and despotism is the worst and most to be dreaded evil that could possibly come out of this. And, and that's exactly what he's saying the General Leviathan is going to be, and, and he was absolutely right there. And for a modern parallel, we have seen that over and over and over again throughout the pandemic. Every time cases tick up just a little bit, the general government is there to say, oh, now we need to do this. We have to do this. We must do this. The only alternative is 50 million deaths. And thankfully, it finally seems like they're starting to back down from this because people are finally standing up and saying that they've had enough. But those in power, especially people who are corrupt and in power, they will do this all the time. They will use any sort of pretense they can. There is no shame in their power grabs. And they will do this over and over again because they've seen that it works. They can whip people into a hysteria and then take advantage of the situation. And it's terrible. It is absolutely terrible. But back to the conclusion of the essay here. Besides, it cannot be supposed that the first essay on so difficult a subject is so well digested as it ought to be. If the proposed plan, after a mature deliberation, should meet the approbation of the respective states, the matter will end. But if it should be found to be fraught with dangers and inconveniencies, a future general convention, being in possession of the objections, will be the better enabled to plan a suitable government. Sentinel. And he actually ends the essay with a quote from uh, Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar. So he says, Who's here so base that would a bondsman be? If any, speak, for him have I offended. Who's here so vile that will not love his country? If any, speak, for him have I offended. And that excerpt came from Julius Caesar again, Act 3, Scene 2. And so that concludes Sentinel 1. Uh, again, this essay was written by Samuel Bryan under that pseudonym. So thank you all again for tuning in, and I will talk to you all next time. Please remember, if you find value in the podcast, to consider becoming a supporting listener today. And don't forget to help fuel the Jeffersonian revolution by using the link in the show notes page to purchase your gold backs. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you so much again for tuning in, and I'll talk to you all next time.